you know how we do it. Remember we start the year with resolutions and great hopes? Now it's the week after Christmas and we're facing the end of the year and the beginning of another and we may wonder, is there a word from God for us at this point? I invite you to listen for it as I read this morning from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, and I'll begin with verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And then in verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots and as a garden causes what is sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church today. I'm persuaded that Abraham Lincoln may have been the best president this country's ever had. And through the years, our family has been able to visit many of the places where Abraham Lincoln lived and worked. We toured the restoration of the village in Harmony, Indiana, where he lived as a young boy. And then we went to the village at New Salem, Illinois, where he was in business as a young man. We've gone through his home in Springfield, Illinois. And one summer in Washington, D.C., we visited the Ford Theater, where he was shot, and the home across the street, where he died. And we spent time in Washington at the Lincoln Monument. When Lincoln lived in Springfield, his neighbor was Roland Dillard. Dillard told the time that he heard children crying outside. And so he went to the front door and there was Lincoln walking by with his two children in hand. They were both wailing loudly. Why, Mr. Lincoln, what's the matter with the boys? Dillard asked. Just what's the matter with the world, Lincoln replied. I've got three walnuts and each of them wants two. Such are the wants of the people in this world. We want more than we can have, more than is available. The sermon text that I read a moment ago from Isaiah is part of a worship poem. 
In lyrical form, it portrays the call of the prophet, God assigning him the task of carrying out the work that God wants done. God tells Isaiah to announce good news to the poor, healing for the brokenhearted, freedom to the captives, and salvation from God. And then the poem concludes with a strong affirmation of God's opposition to oppression and support for justice. And then there's the summation. God wants to bless people by forming an eternal covenant with them. So what does God want? God wants a permanent relationship with all people. Now it's important to note what's involved in a relationship with God. Certainly we're told God saves and strengthens and renews people in relationship. That's stated poetically in the text. You you heard me read it, exchange garland for ashes, oil of festivity for the clothes of mourning, the songs of happiness for the cries of pain. That is, God is going to give people a reason to celebrate, not just to grieve. And like a gardener planting and caring for a tree, until it's tall and strong, God will treat people in the relationship in such a way that they will mature into joyous strength. These people are to live in love and justice. But having stated the contribution of God to the relationship, this poem goes on to describe the obligation people have in that relationship with God. Because if we're in relationship to God, we're expected to shape our lives by the standard of God's love and justice. Although he was a noted English statesman, and scholar in the 15th century, I suspect most of us would never know about Sir Thomas More today if it were not for his singular act of courage heralded in the drama and in the movie, A Man for All Seasons. Sir Thomas More was Chancellor of England in the 1530s when King Henry VIII insisted on divorcing Catherine of Aragon and marrying Anne Boleyn. This caused a crisis of conscience for Moore. He resigned his chancellorship in 1532 and retired to his home in Chelsea. Moore was willing to accept the act of succession that declared that the children of Anne Boleyn would be heirs to the throne. But he was not able to take an oath that opposed the authority of the Pope over the church in England or that claimed that Henry's divorce of Catherine was right. He uttered no word of disloyalty, but Henry could not rest knowing that the best mind in England silently condemned him. After nearly a year of imprisonment in the tower, Moore was finally tried and condemned as a traitor, not for anything that he had said or done, but because he courageously stood by his convictions on what was right and what was wrong. The people in relationship to God are to govern their lives by the consciences shaped by God's standard of love and justice. That's the way we're to live. The poem can tell us what God wants. But actually, it doesn't answer another question that occurs often in my mind. How does it happen? For me, it's not enough to know what God wants. I often need to know how is it going to happen? How am I going to do it? And I realize that the answer to that question is found in Jesus. 
Because Jesus came into this world to initiate the relationship to God. In Luke chapter 4, we are told that when he began his public ministry, Jesus went to the synagogue for the worship service in his hometown of Nazareth. He was asked to speak. He took the scroll of Isaiah and he read to the congregation that portion of Isaiah which forms the sermon text for today. And then when he was through, he handed the scroll to the attendant, sat down and said, this passage has come true today as you heard it being read. Halford Luckett, a preacher of the last century, a great preacher, says he was shopping during the Christmas rush one year when in the bustle of the crowd, he bumped into a woman in the crowd and her, the packages in her arm just scattered across the floor. He quickly began to get down and to help her uh, pick them back up and began to apologize, telling how sorry he was. And when he finished telling how sorry he was, she said, I just hate Christmas. It just turns everything around in life. After a moment, Dr. Lucka remarked, that's just what it was made for. It does turn everything around in life. We've moved through the season of Advent. We've celebrated Christmas. Now we're moving on toward a new year. And we need to remember that Christmas was intended to turn life around, to draw people into a relationship to God, a relationship that changes everything. Christmas celebrates the coming of Jesus to accept the task first given to that prophet. Because Jesus came to announce healing and freedom and the good news of forgiveness and fellowship with God. Christmas tells us that what God wants, God has provided for in Jesus. In an article in Guidepost Christmas Treasury, Marjorie Talcott tells about a Christmas in her family several years ago. She writes, when our son Pete was six, it was a depression year. And the bare essentials were all that we could afford. We felt we were richer than most people, though, in all the things of mind and imagination and spirit. And while that was a comfort of sorts for us, it was nothing that a six-year-old could understand. So with Christmas a week off, we told Pete that there could not be any store-bought gifts this year for any of us. But I'll tell you what we can do, his father announced with an inspiration born out of heartbreak, we can make pictures of the presents we would like to give to each other. And so for the next few days, each of us worked secretly with smirks and giggles. Somehow uh, we were able to scrape together enough to buy a small tree, uh, but there were pitiful few decorations to put on it. Yet on Christmas morning, there was never a tree heaped with such riches. Now the gifts were only pictures of gifts to be sure, cut out or drawn and colored but they were presents luxurious beyond dreams. A slinky black limousine and a red motorboat for daddy. A diamond bracelet and a fur coat for me. Pete's presents were the most expensive toys cut from advertisements. Our best present to him was a picture of a fabulous camping tent, complete with Indian designs painted, of course, by daddy, and magnificent pictures of a swimming pool. My best... Daddy's best present to me was a watercolor that he had painted of our dream house, white with green shutters and forsythia bushes planted out in front. My best present for Daddy was a sheaf of verses that I had written over the years, verses about sad things and amusing things. 
that we had gone through together. Now, naturally, we did not expect any best present from Pete, but with squeals of delight, he brought out a crayon drawing of flashy colors and the most modernistic of technique. But it was unmistakably the picture of three people laughing, a man and a woman and a little boy. They had their arms around one another, and they were, in a sense, one person. Under the picture, he had printed just one word, us. Us. For God, us means people related to God. Christmas is an invitation to know and to love God, to know and to love others. We've decorated, we've celebrated Christmas Day. We've enjoyed the songs. We've enjoyed shopping and the decorations and the foods and the time of goodwill. But most of all, as we bring this year to a close, I think you can enjoy the fact that God wants you and loves you and always will. Will you pray with me? Oh, gracious God, we thank you for your love. Your love that has given us life, that has given us new life in Jesus and has welcomed us into your family. On this last Sunday of the year, as we anticipate what may lie ahead, we thank you that we're a part of your family and ask that you would continue to lead us and watch over us in all that occurs. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.